Max? Okay, uh, let's pray. Father, as we uh, celebrate uh, the wonders and the glories of our Savior, our propitiation, your propitiation, the God-satisfying sacrifice that it was slain for us, how we are forever grateful that the benefits of all that have come to us. And we are the ones who have been now privileged to come before you as our Father and to enjoy this relationship of love and tenderness and, and closeness and acceptance. And, and it truly is a wonder. It is amazing, Lord, the grace you've shown us in Christ. And so we celebrate our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that he was willing to take that wealth and the richness, riches of all he had. He would lay that aside, became poor for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so, Lord, receive our thankful praise. And now we ask that you would uh, work in our hearts and our minds. And uh, as we look into your word, Lord, help us to see uh, the glimpses of the glories of you and of our Savior. And uh, help us, Lord, to look at the reasons as to why we do what we do. And that these uh, portions of your word would direct our hearts into the gospel of Christ in a fresh and real way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's a fair statement to say that ministry in, a local, in our local church, ministry in our families, uh, ministry in our workplaces, in the schools that we attend, ministry in our neighborhoods, or even in a cross-cultural situation around the world, ministry was never designed to have as its goal self-fulfillment. If we're involved in ministry, we never be, be, be aware it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about us becoming self-fulfilled people. The primary purpose of gospel ministry is to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul faced this kind of tension in his ministry because over and over, as he sought to minister to people who were quite different from him in many ways through the years, he tried to distance himself from being accused of or grouped in with those people who were motivated to, to do quote-unquote ministry uh, uh, from the point of view of how it would help them. And so Paul had many critics, critics who were impressed with false apostles, people who said, oh, we, you know, we're, we're apostles of Jesus Christ, you should listen to what we have to say. Meanwhile, they're false teachers, and they would come into these churches and they were, so, they were so intent on deriving from those people as much as they could for themselves. Paul says, no, that's not my approach. He says, my aim to ministry, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, was to please the Lord. And then he goes on to say, we're not to live for ourselves. I'm here to live for him who died and who has rose again on our behalf. So Paul deliberately took steps to avoid discrediting the gospel ministry that he was trying to carry out. And so listen to the list of hardships. If you want to look along, you can in 2 Corinthians 6. I'm just giving you some backdrop now of what we're going to read about here in Acts 14 in just a minute. But listen to what Paul says. This is what I have faced in doing ministry. It is required of me to deal with afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, he faced angry mobs, he worked to the point of exhaustion, he endured sleepless nights, 
and even times where he had nothing to eat. In listing these things, Paul tries to help remind those who are criticizing him that his motivation is not to use people. His motivation was not to try to uh, take advantage of people in order to embellish his own bank account, his own assets. He wasn't there to try to fulfill his sense of importance. He was not about trying to gain respect of other people. That's what really drove him in ministry. The summary statement about his goal in ministry is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, page 1375 in your pew Bible, verse 15. He says this, All things regarding this ministry that we're involved in are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Paul says what we're about here is to make sure that you understand. It's, we're not trying to get everything for ourselves. We're trying to drive everything toward the goal of giving glory to God so that you're joining in that and we also are doing the same. Now if you know Paul's story, that was not his original drive in, in life. As you recall, Paul the Pharisee, Saul the Pharisee, his heart was transformed by the gospel of grace. And so he renounced this popular approach to ministry that was using people to meet his own needs, and instead he's seeking now to glorify God by helping them come to the point where they are learning to treasure Christ and learning to find the gospel to be their greatest delight. And not everyone was thrilled with what Paul did, all of his different approaches, all the different things that he preached and said and, and taught on. Many people took great offense at his sermon. And that's what we're going to find today as we look at Acts 14. So if you've got your Bible there, we'd like us to look at this particular passage this Sunday and next Sunday. Uh, like I say, I've got three things I want to find from this text today and three next week from the same passage. Um, Lord willing... Lord willing, next Sunday, that was last week's sermon for those of you here, um, I want to highlight several distinctives or characteristics of a God-glorifying ministry. So let's read along now as we look at Acts 14, and we'll read, uh, we'll read probably the first 1 through 28, let's say. And it came about that in Iconium, this is in Galatia, the larger uh, segment of um, the world at that time, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both of Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. And therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was, here, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands." But the multitude of the city was divided, and some of, the, some of them sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with the, their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And by the way, if you're reading through a passage like this, it's probably wise to normally stop, get your Bible, and how many of you have maps in the back of your Bible? Okay, how many have a maps of Paul's trips, his missionary journeys? You look at missionary journey number one, you get that color-coded line, and you find where these cities are located. So you can at least get your bearings as to what's going on. Verse 8, 
And at Lystra there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had had faith to be made well, and said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. And when the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in a Lyconian language, The gods have become like men, have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus. And Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the chief priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles... When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these empty or vain idols, vain things, to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And and in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the apostles stood around him, he arose and entered the city, and the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city, And had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. Again, what I'm trying to glean from this passage of Scripture is just some insights. What do you think are characteristics of God-glorifying ministry that is being exemplified here? I would suggest to you one of them very clearly is from verses 1 to 7. Is this proclamation of a gospel of grace with consistency and courage. You just can't help but notice if you, by the way, you can't just jump into chapter 14 like I just did um, and understand this passage clearly because there was no division between these chapters in the original way Luke compiled it. His record had no division here. So we really should have read chapter 13, which flows with chapter 14, which gives us the record of what's been happening in this particular trip where they're ministering. And can I give you a little tidbit here? No extra charge. Chapter divisions were not placed into the content or into the arrangement of Scripture until they uh, estimate in the 1200s by a guy named Bishop Stephen Langton. And he did so just so people could find their way around. How do you tell them how to turn to some passage and read it together and so they sort of numbered these chapters, and then they'd say, okay, go down the side of the page, and there'd be an A, B, C, and D, and you'd find your way down to somewhere underneath that particular chapter division. And it wasn't until the 1500s, uh, many times with the Geneva Bible, that they think that the, the verse divisions were added. Just for your information, 
No extra charge. If you ever need to know Bible trivia, that was one of them I learned this week. All right, so in chapter 13, to back up and understand what Paul and Barnabas had been doing, they had been bearing witness to the Word of God. And if you don't want to take the time, and I've done that in my Bible, I've underlined every time that mentions what they're doing. They are mentioning, preaching, they are uh, reminding and speaking about the Word of God, which in this uh, particular verse, verse 3 of chapter 14, he uses the phrase, the gospel of grace. Right? Chapter 14, verse 3, he says, um, the word of his grace is the, is the actual thing that he's talking about there. So sometimes when people hear the gospel of grace, they embraced it and they were such, they were filled with great delight, joy, and wonder. Other times, because people's hearts, we learn in chapter 13, their hearts became jealous because of the tremendous response sometimes. Uh, people heard this wonderful gospel grace. They would revile these disciples. They repudiated them. They instigated persecution time and time again. That's chapter 13. And now here it's repeating in chapter 14. But one of the reasons that Paul and Barnabas kept moving to other cities was not because they couldn't afford where they were staying. It's because that there was a huge crowd of people who were ready to kill them. Their message had been rejected. And so here we are in chapter 14, we read these two men ministering now in an, a synagogue in Iconium. And why do they go to a synagogue? Well, because, first of all, it makes sense that's the people they have most easily can connect with because of their background. They have lots in common with these folks, and therefore they have an opportunity to, to minister to them using their common knowledge of the Scripture and with their own Jewish backgrounds, and so they have, that's an easy place to start. They also did so because of the order of priority. Jesus made it very clear that his ministry came to the Jews. He ministered to them primarily. And then he said, okay, we having brought the gospel to the Jews, now it's important as he gave his commission there to the disciples. Acts 1.8, you're to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea. What's the next one? Samaria and uttermost parts of the earth. That's the Gentiles. Samaritans were the half-breeds. That was like the, instead of Jewish, it was Jewish and Gentile, and then Gentiles. So that's what they're doing here. And the commission, of course, being carried out now by these apostles, they take the gospel to the Jews, and notice what their, what their focus is, as I said in verse 3. The message is easily. It's the gospel of grace. The word that speaks about the grace of God found in Jesus the Messiah. Now there are some today who have made a big deal over, and I'm not saying that everything this particular author has talked about, regarding a position called the new perspective on Paul. There's a scholar who has come out, and he's now come out with a lot of unusual understandings of the first century. And he is suggesting that this new perspective on Paul, Paul's not really talking to a crowd of people in first century, in first century Judaism who are just trying to keep a bunch of rules in order to make their way somehow into favor with God. That he would claim that's not what they're doing. That the, that they're, that the Pharisees, the way we understand the Pharisees, is all twisted, distorted. We really don't understand it a lot very carefully. And uh, it was more of a statement of who should be allowed in the church and considered to be a part of the church. That was the view of this particular author. But if you'll notice in the text, I think it's verses like this when he's talking to a Jewish audience that Luke specifically says, the word of his grace. He talks about grace. Of course he's talking about contrasting 
The idea of having to keep the law versus the idea of someone kept the law for you and therefore you are accepted by God on the basis of grace. For a Jewish audience, yes, and a Gentile audience. And so I've given you in your notes there, I thought, a helpful quote from Michael Horton. The law tells us what to do. And for a true Jew, he knows there's, what, 300 some laws about what you're supposed to be doing and what you're not supposed to be doing. But the gospel tells us what God has done for us in Christ on the basis of grace. <laughs> Hallelujah, that's the gospel. Again, the gospel of grace was proclaimed, look at verse 3, boldly. A bold gospel witness. Bold gospel witness is in reliance on the Lord. And this reliance on the Lord is never a characteristic of someone who is a person focused on themselves. People who are boldly witnessing for Christ and who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, relying upon the Lord, is not a person that's self-focused. This bold witness is the overflow of a heart that is passionate for God's glory. It's passionate for the salvation of souls. Now, I would just like to say before we move on to our next point, may I suggest to you that one of the ways in which we try to help people understand the glories of God's grace is that when we approach them, there are several ways to do it. Again, uh, I think it's uh, Ray Comfort talks about the fact that in the way of the master, his approach to try to share the gospel with people is that to the person who's the guilty soul, they feel the weight of their sin, they understand that they have failed to be right before God, that person you say, here's the wonders of God's grace shown in Christ to you. But the soul who is filled with a sense of confidence in themselves, who doesn't have any sense of conviction of sin, then you bring the law to that person and you help them see that they have broken God's law. They are a liar. They are a person who's committed uh, uh, adultery in their mind and they're a person who's an adulterer, as it were. You're a person that's stolen something. You're a, you're a thief, whatever. And so he has a whole gospel presentation designed to help people what? Understand that to the guilty one, you point them to grace. To the one who feels uh, rather smug in their self-righteousness, you point them to the law so that they might understand that they are guilty and in need of grace. Whatever it is, we obviously need to continue to realize that proclaiming the gospel to people, and by the way, the good question he starts off with is, do you consider yourself a good person? That's a great opening question, isn't it? You consider yourself a good person. And how people answer that question indicates which approach you take in their gospel presentation with them, right? Anyway, uh, much more I could say about that, uh, but I want to move on to our second point here uh, in our outline there. Um, and let's give some background as to what's going to happen next, because once you move into verses 6 and 7, you, re you recall that they begin to flee. They're going to leave that town. They're going to leave Iconium. And now they're moving off to Laconia, Lystra, and Derby. By the way, just some background information. Lystra is 26 miles east. That's where they're headed east. And eventually, Derby is 55 miles further. So this is not just a little trek around the corner. These are obviously significant, um, rather time-consuming and challenging uh, distances to cover. Uh, by the way, Lystra is considered to be sort of out in the country. It's not one of these gigantic uh, uh, cosmopolitan uh, 
um, metropolitan hubs where there's just huge numbers of people. No, it's considered more out in the country. Happens to be, by the way, the hometown of Timothy. Uh, so just as you follow along what's going on here. Let's look at secondly now, beginning in verses 8 through 18. What's another indicator of a God-glorifying ministry? As I've read through this text, one of the things that came to my mind is a passionate zeal for God's honor. A passionate zeal for God's honor. So where do you get that? Well, I don't have a lot of time to go into the incident where Paul heals this individual, but you can't help but hear an echo here, I think, of what happened in chapter 3 with Peter and John in the temple complex. And so you have a similar kind of miracle now being done by Paul, uh, who uh, sees this man completely healed. In your notes, I've again reminded you of the role of apostles, first century apostles, had, I think, unique gifts, unique abilities that would establish and be a sign that verified their legitimacy as true representatives of Jesus Christ. So I think that's what's happening here. Anyway, he heals this lame man. And clearly there's an obvious display of God's power. Display, there's no question about it, right? This man is jumping up and there's a lot of commotion. And the crowd notices what takes place. Paul and Barnabas are thrown now into this awkward situation. Paul, I'm sure, is aware of the fact that he does not deserve to be an apostle. And so he's, I think, always carrying around within him a sense of, I should never be in this role. It's amazing that I'm in this role. And so he's not looking for lots of accolades. He's not looking for people to put him up on a pedestal. He's looking to point people to Christ. And the gospel now has elevated him as a person who was a violent aggressor, a person who was a blasphemer who had no thought of ever coming onto good terms with the God he had offended so desperately, uh, uh, disastrously for so long. He has now been in the gospel, forgiven and raised up to the position of being accepted by God and loved by Jesus Christ in a profound way. And that's what's motivating him now to, to minister. So here they are in Lystra, they see this miracle, and all of a sudden people are coming to them and they're making such a big deal, calling them Zeus and Hermes. Now, if, if you're reading this text, you're scratching your head and go, what? where is that coming from? Is it because of visual resemblances? <laughs> is it because of what? How did they get that? All right, here's some background. I don't know, how many of you ever heard of Paul Harvey years ago? This is the, this is the rest of the story, Okay. The back, back story here is that people of Lystra had, were familiar with a story written 50 years earlier called Metamorphoses by a Roman author called Ovid, O-V-I-D. He wrote about two gods who happened to be who? Zeus and Hermes. And they came in human form, and this story says, and they lived and they walked around this town, around the Lystra area, and they went door to door, can we stay with you? And they were, uh, the residents after resident, door after door, house after house said, no, 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 sorry, can't stay here. Hundreds of people refused to give them uh, accommodation. After a while, the only people that re received them was this elderly couple, according to the story, and the gods at that point, having found a place that they were received, went about and destroyed the homes and the people of those who would not give them accommodations and then built a temple out of the little humble abode of the elderly couple and that's where they were therefore uh, worshipped and they raised these people up, whatever. So, 
people in that town have this story in their mind. And now, having seen what Paul has done, listen to what uh, Barnabas and some of the things that are going on there, put two and two together, and next thing you know, the, the temple priest, who is apparently located out of town, he comes into town, and he's clearly got some animals with him, he's got some wreaths, and clearly he's ready to offer sacrifices to these guys. The town begins to pick up on this too, and they're addressing these guys as if they're gods in disguise. Now, how are you going to handle that situation? I've never had that problem, by the way. I don't know about you, but I've never had that situation ever unfold. Again, notice the reaction of Paul and Barnabas. Once they figure out what's happening, and by the way, you've got to add another complexity here, they've got a language issue going on here. The particular language spoken in this town is not familiar to them, I don't think. And so somehow they're trying to figure out one thing after the other, and finally becomes obvious that, the, that they are sensing that these people are going to now worship them as gods. And what is their response? Is their response like, hey... These people think we're wonderful. Let them think that we're those, you know, incredible people for, for a while so we can enjoy this kind of... No! They rip their clothes out of a sense of, you people are committing blasphemy to somehow think that we are on the level of God. And their whole hearts, their hearts are, are burdened and concerned with what? Pointing them to the true and living God who they represent, but they certainly are not claiming to be God. And notice what they said to these gentlemen and to the people of that city and to this priest that's bringing all this stuff. They don't start talking to them about obscure scriptures that they've never heard of. They don't start quoting psalms. They don't start quoting portions of the Torah about you not to make graven images. They don't talk about any of that stuff. Why? These people have no background in that at all. They're clueless. They don't have a Bible. Never read a Bible. And what do they do? They start speaking to them uh, in verses, if you'll notice there, um, tore their robes for 14, 15. Here we go. He starts, they talk about the living God. And then he does quote, and I don't think they even knew that he was quoting, but he does quote there, the God who made heavens and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, which is a quotation taken from uh, Deuteronomy. But the point here is what? He is going to point them to a revelation that they are familiar with, and that is natural revelation. If you're familiar with Romans chapter 1, and if you have not familiar with that text enough to know what I'm talking about when I refer to Romans chapter 1, I urge you to read that carefully later today, beginning in verse 18, and look at the argument that Paul makes. God has revealed himself clearly undeniably to every single person who is alive. They know some things about God just because of creation. They know that there is a God, number one, and they know that that God exists and that he is powerful, he is eternal. That's the argument of Romans 1. Indisputable. Every person who's ever been born, that is true of them, unless they are in a category of person who is unable to discern that evidence. And this is where I think God deals with those people, that is, mentally, people who are mentally challenged, people who are extremely small and young and have not developed a mind that understands things. They are in different categories. But everyone else who's got a mind and understands these things, been around a while, they know that God exists, they know He's powerful and eternal. And Paul and Barnabas adeptly redirected the spotlight instead of accolades toward them, of reverent worship shown to them, 
away from them and onto the true and living God. They reminded these people that the true and living God providentially has been blessing you people. And he's probably talking about agriculturally. There's been rain, you've been able to have food, you've been able to have sunshine. God has shown you these kinds of things. These things don't just happen randomly and you've never thanked God for it. Now here's the important reminder I get out of this text. One thing is that when we're dealing with people who claim that they don't have any belief or under, you know, they don't have any kind of um, respect for the Word of God, start talking about natural revelation. Start talking about the fact that how can you explain the world, and the complexities of the world? Is there not a God? Is it not obvious? There's design everywhere. Even in the human cell, there is an incredible amount of design. And, uh, and I'm just a simple little guy from West Virginia, but I can tell you that's true. Now, I took biology, can't tell you much about it now, but I'm telling you, you get into this, there's all kinds of complexity and design in there, going down to the level of DNA. Incredible amount of complexity. How does that come about in a random world? Anyway, there's a lot of things we could take as an approach here, but what I want to focus on in this particular way is I'm looking at the text from the point of view of what God-glorifying ministry is. God is calling us, his people, to be involved in gospel ministry for the glory of his name. We're not here to find glory for you and me. Our task is not to present ourselves as impressive paragons of virtue or as people who are morally faultless to other people around us so that they will be impressed with us. <laughs> Matter of fact, they should be aware that we are not all that. We are people who have all kinds of warts and faults and difficulties and struggles and failings in our lives. They need to know that. Our goal is to point unbelievers away from the idols that they have latched onto, the worthless, empty things that they have become, that they have begun to place their hope and faith in as the ultimate, that are just part of the created world. And to have them understand that God is the greater treasure and to fulfill their God-given duty to worship and enjoy and adore the God who has made them. Made them for himself, made everything in the universe. John Piper, I have some quotes in your notes there, writes a very helpful book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And he has this quote. He says, missions, that is gospel ministry that goes to the four corners of the world, exists because the worship of God doesn't. People are not worshiping the true and living God. So the whole reason we want to take gospel to people is so they will become worshipers of the true and living God. Another helpful quote he has here is, missions is not a recruitment project for God's labor force. It is a liberation project from the heavy burdens and hard yokes of other gods. Do you see the people around you who are unbelievers as living under the heavy burden of a false god? of the idols that they have now somehow looked to. I brought with me today a copy of this book, which I would commend you to read sometime to help you understand the idols of our world are not these statues that people used to bow down and make out of metal or wood or stone in the times of the, of the centuries leading up to Christ uh, or among the Romans who had various idols all around. Uh, Tim Keller has written Counterfeit Gods, a very helpful uh, modern a way of helping us understand, he calls the empty promises of money, sex, and power, and the only hope that matters. He goes on to say, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. 
Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is something so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So it could be anything from financial resources. It could be your children, your career, making money, achievements, critical acclaim, whatever it is. We tend to make those things the ultimate things, and therefore we've struggled with idols. A very good read. I commend it to you. And our task, of course, in our day is to think about our family and our, our neighbors, our people around us who are falling into this kind of thinking. Is our hearts, are our hearts uh, breaking for our unsaved people who have now looked to the good things of this world and making them into the ult- ultimate things? And therefore, knowing the bondage that that brings and the unfulfillment that that will leave them hanging with. I wonder if the passion of the glory of God motivates you to serve others in such a way that they will see your good works because we're not here to use people. We're not here to try to gain a name for ourselves. We're here to celebrate the name that God has given us by making people impressed with Him and not ourselves. Well, there's more we could say there, but I want to move to my third point here. Um, And that is uh, thirdly, verses 19 to 21. Persistence despite tribulations and troubles. Persistence. Now when you start reading verse 19 and following, I think you noticed when I was reading, I slowed down and it became a very poignant passage. I mean, to me, if you're making this into a movie, this is where you slow things down, you zoom in, and you begin to slow motion some of these things that are happening because it's an incredibly um, dynamic moment here. Beginning in verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Here's folks from the previous towns that have run them out of town. And they're not content just to run them out of town. They're coming to make sure that what? He is silenced. We want no more of hearing this guy saying these things. It's a form of what? Intolerance that we often sometimes see today. And so they come to town. They win over the multitudes by just Bashir causing this big mob, and they start stoning Paul, notice, and they drag him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. You can't read these words casually, can you? I mean, think about that. Stones are being heaved and thrown right at you and with the purpose of putting you to death. Now, let's think carefully about what happens next. These people who are so disgruntled, so upset, so uptight and intolerant, they get everyone else to be convinced that maybe they they tell them, these guys have said things that have offended our gods. They've blasphemed our gods, so maybe that's why they're doing it. I don't know, it doesn't say why, but what an irony. If you were to rewind what's been happening in the book of Acts, and you go back into chapter 7, can you remember that scene? You've got Stephen the gospel witness, who is speaking the truth in love, saying what's really the truth about the temple, saying the ultimate truth about who God is, that God is greater than any kind of temple that he can't contain God. And so he's saying things that seem a little offensive to people, and next thing you know, he's got rocks headed his direction. He is being stoned. And the guy standing there 
who is giving approval to it, who is holding the witnesses of all the jackets there, whatever, and he's basically saying, I'm making sure this is the right way to handle this matter, is Saul, the Pharisee, who is now the one who's being stoned himself as Paul, the missionary. Now, it doesn't say anything here. And by the way, it's been 15 years since that occurred, approximately. Just, just so you know how the time has gone by here. 15 years. Saul has become Paul. He's transformed by the gospel. He is now a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And we're not told here, but you've got to wonder. What was going through Paul's mind? I'm, I can't help but think that what? I, I'm, I have, I've, I'm convinced in my mind, I can't prove it, that he starts having flashbacks of Stephen. Because Stephen was a powerful gospel witness to him, even in the way in which he died. Made a huge impact on him. So that what Paul now says, in light of this stoning, if you look at Galatians 6, verse 17, and by the way, this town of Lystra is in the larger area of Galatia, so this is a letter that was soon written there to those folks. He says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I don't know what kind of marks stoning makes. I haven't really thought much about that. But obviously, you've got some serious bruising, contusions. You've got some terrible cuts. You've got some terrible broken bones. I'm not sure what all uh, that means. But fast forward around 18 years later, and Paul is writing the last letter of his life to his uh, son in the ministry, Timothy, and who, by the way, is from Lystra. And so he says there to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, I want to remind you now about my persecutions. Was Timothy there to see this? Was Timothy there witnessing this as well? Was this part of what influenced him to come to faith? don't know. My persecutions, I want to remind you about my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. And yet, listen to this next statement. Yet, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3. And what do we read in the text there? Somehow Paul survives. They assumed he was dead. Maybe he's just laying there. He's still. He's not moving. He's in tremendous pain. They just assumed he died. Nobody checked his pulse. But let me tell you, there's some serious suffering that comes. And there's lots of trouble. There's lots of heartache. There's lots of tribulation for those who are faithful. And yet there are many who persist in the middle of it because they're focused on God, not focused on just living a life of comfort. I came across an amazing story about a, a very committed believer called Brother Prem, P-R-E-M. He's from Nepal. He is a Nepali, a person from that area. He was called the Apostle of Nepal is a, is a title of honor given to him back in the 60s and 70s. He was arrested not a couple of times, but he was held in 14 different prisons. And why? Because he was sharing the gospel with other people. People were coming to faith. He would baptize them. And boy, if they ever caught him, they would arrest all of them. And so he went from prison to prison. He says, Nepali prisons 
were literally dungeons of death. About 25 or 30 people are jammed into one small room with no ventilation, no sanitation. The smell is so bad, according to this record, uh, that newcomers would often pass out in less than half an hour. Lack of heat in the winter, no ventilation in the summer added to the discomfort, as did cockroaches, lice, rats that gnawed on the prisoners' toes as they slept. And they had one incident where they took this brother Prem and they put him in a special particular room to break him, to bring him to the point where he would finally renounce Christ or he would finally just lose track of all reality. And the room was so small he couldn't stand up, he couldn't even stretch out on the floor, he could not build a fire to cook or other prisoners would oftentimes slip food under the door just to try to help him survive. In the wintertime, he nearly froze to death several times. He would have lice eating away at his underwear. He couldn't scratch because his hands were chained. It's awful. And he slept in that solitary confinement, total darkness, but he didn't break. Eventually, he was released. He was transferred to other prisons, and wherever he went, what was he doing? Sharing his faith, the prisoners, as well as his guards. And when he was released, he refused to stop witnessing or he refused to stop organizing secret churches, and he was arrested again. And he raised the question, he says, how can a church go underground, he asked the question. Jesus died openly for us. He did not try to hide on the way, on the, on the way to the cross. We must also speak out boldly for him, regardless of the consequences. What drives people like that? I'll tell you one thing, they're not living a self-fulfillment life. It's anything but that. It is a god consumed life that says they have such a passion for God because why? He's the greatest treasure they have found in the gospel. And here's the Apostle Paul. If you keep reading in the text down to verse 20, they went away from that situation. What would you have done? Rethought your strategy? Regroup? Think about, I don't know if it's worth keep saying the kind of same things we've been saying. Maybe we ought to have another way of approaching this thing. Maybe we ought to just uh, sort of realize these crowds can be, get out of hand. It's amazing. They went away to Derby, preached the gospel in that town, and they made many disciples. What kind of perseverance and persistence is that? Well, I think it's, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the gospel made his heart so compassionate for people who were lost, and also because he realized that the gospel was the only hope for all these people, and that really what they needed was to know God, just like he had a desperate need to know God at one time in his life, and that he was the one who used to be on the other end of things. He was the one who was throwing the stones. He was the one who was so passionately against Christ and the Christian faith, and yet his heart now realized, I was wrong. I was wrong. I was completely blind and in error. I wonder if there's some among us here today, if we've become a little discouraged in ministry and we've maybe backed off from getting involved in some things and maybe we're not doing some of the kind of work and labors we used to be doing and maybe at times we got burned because you offended somebody when you said something about Christ and the gospel and, or someone who's even in the church who said something to you that didn't sit right with you, and so you felt like, oh man, if this is what I get for trying to do what's faithful in Christ, 
Have you backed away and say, you know, I got burned by somebody. I'm not going to keep saying these things. I'm not going to keep discipling. I'm not going to keep giving myself away. My friends, the same gospel is a gospel that has changed us and the same gospel that hopefully motivates us. Not to stand on the sidelines, not to avoid trouble, not to avoid heartache, but that we do these things. Why? Because our hearts have not made the idol of our hearts is not comfort. It is not finding acceptance and convenience in life. Our hearts are treasuring the greatest of all treasures, Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will keep us going. Let's pray. Father, as we've appreciated uh, reading this account of your people, we know they're not perfect. We know they had many weaknesses and areas of failing. But Lord, what we do read about is an amazing work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts to see the gospel transforming them, motivating them, emboldening them, giving them the kind of persistence to keep going, uh, to lay themselves down in the face of danger, to place themselves in places of, of risk and not holding back. Lord, we pray that you would help us to think about what that looks like in our lives, that the gospel would so work its way into our hearts that we would be emboldened, that we would be a people who are given a, a, a persistence and perseverance to keep at ministry, which becomes difficult and challenging at times. Lord, help us, we pray, not to be living for ourselves and to be consumed with trying to live lives that are self-fulfillment oriented. Lord, help us to live a life that is lived for your honor and for your glory, to make much of you with the opportunities that we have. Help us, Father, we pray, to um, find the gospel working its way down into our own hearts that we might be a people who are changed and do so in a way that glorifies you even this week and dealing with the people around us, whether it be our family, our neighbors, our fellow students at school, our coworkers, our church members, our friends here. Lord, help us, we pray, to live a life where it's evident that we are passionately seeking to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.